Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. The greatest contiguous land empire ever carved out, the Mongols. The Mongols built an empire that stretched from Korea to Poland, down into China and South Asia. It's one of the most extraordinary imperial stories in our history. And Marie Favreau has written a beautiful, a wonderful book about it. She's Associate Professor of History at Paris Nanterre University. The Mongols are known for their conquest, but Marie Favreau was able to do was talk to me all about how they ran a huge empire in the aftermath of that initial wave of conquest. She talks about this cross-border integration, trade, messengers, the landscape. It is absolutely extraordinary. I'm massively excited about this podcast. Here is Marie Favreau talking about the Mongol horde. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And lift off. Marie, thank you very much for coming on. Hello, thank you so much for your invitation. I'm delighted to be here. What part of the Mongol Empire are we looking at? So we are looking at the western part of the Mongol Empire, and it covers what is Russia today, including southern Siberia and also including southern Caucasus and a part of eastern Europe. It is a source of extraordinary fascination how close, obviously I'm being very Eurocentric here, but the Mongols, you know, they get to within sight of Vienna. This is a very European story. It's not a story in distant East Asia. Absolutely. And that also was a very important aspect of my research. So the people that the Mongol Empire is also connected to European history. And this is something we're not used to know. And I thought that it was really important to show that this was a key aspect of the trade connection of the Mongols with the outside world through Europe. Why is it that traditionally the Mongols didn't feature in traditional historiography? Is it seen that they kind of got lucky, conquered a big empire, and then were subsequently eclipsed by the great European empires, perhaps the Mughal Empire in southern Asia, and then the reassertion of Chinese rule in East Asia. Like, why do wonderful books like yours come along and just blow all our minds? Yes, I do agree with you. I mean, the historiography wasn't fair to the Mongols, in fact. Their empire was seen as a short moment, like huge but short in time, and not well developed in terms of administration. While, in fact, actually, we know now that it lasted, at least in the Western part, until the end of the 15th century. So it was three centuries of power 
and a very special organization on the ground. So I think that one of the main reasons probably is that for the Russians, for the Chinese, but also for the Middle Eastern powers, like the Iranians, it was good to see the end of the Mongol Empire very early on because it meant that their own national states would be seen as developing earlier than it actually was. So, I mean, let's say that the Mongols disturbed nationalist historiographies everywhere in Eurasia. That's why it was really important for me to sort of re-communicate to wider audience the real truth of that part of history, that big moment of history. Disturbing nationalist historiographies is my jam. I'm a big fan of that. Talk to me first about conquest. The bit that people might know, of course, is they were extraordinary warriors covering vast distances, using mobility like almost no other force in history. Is that fair? Should we remember that initial military period of conquest? What was remarkable about them in that period? Well, that's true that they were special warriors, but at the same time, they were not very numerous and they had to develop other strategies, sometimes also to impress people because they were not so numerous. If we compare with, you know, the sedentary communities, the sedentary subjects in China, in Iran, in the Russian principalities. So... They had to be clever in that sense. They would have a very indirect way of controlling access to the resources. So they will really map the territories they want to control and they will not be interested in having, you know, direct control, but really indirect control was more important for them. And they will develop tools like taxation tools, administrative tools as well. So it's not only about war. Well, let's talk more. So after this period of conquest, how did they govern and sustain this empire? What was the character of that? Was it very different to what had gone before? Yeah, it was a very different kind of power. I mean, this was nomadic power. The Mongols would never sedentarize. They would remain nomad, and that gave them a lot of mobility, that gave them an ability to cross huge rivers, which were, you know, very important in the landscape, in the um, Eurasian landscape. I mean, they will also ask their subject, the chiefs, let's say, of their subject to come and visit them at their nomadic court. So they would force the sedentary to come to them. Otherwise, they will let them also, you know, build up their own trade and communities. So that's a very interesting relationship on the long term, especially in the case of the Western part of the Mongol Empire. We are thinking about the relationship between the Mongols and the Russians, of course. They were different also because they were certainly more powerful than previous nomadic powers that were in the area before, like the Khazar, for instance, or the Seljuk. So uh, they really developed a huge trade network. Their reach was enormous, like really beyond the traditional frontiers for previous nomadic states or nomadic powers. And you talk about trade. Is it true to say that by... I don't want to use a dodgy parallel, but, you know, the Pax Romana, by establishing this trans-Eurasian cultural and political space, it became easier to move across that. It became easier to trade through it. 
It's absolutely true. So I like the word actually Mongol exchange, which I use in my book. I show how this is much more than what we could call Pax Mongolica, like Pax Romana. It's a much bigger thing. It's like the Colombian exchange. So it's a big moment of globalization, pre-modern globalization. But at the same time, it goes beyond the frontiers of the Mongol Empire. And it will reach Northern Europe as well, which is something I show in my book, the connection with even Germany and the Baltic area as well. They will also develop, you know, use tools just like agreements with merchants, contract, like written tools, which sound a little bit strange for people who don't know that nomads can use writing systems. The Mongols used writing systems. They also used coins, a different kind of coinage. They used also weights. They have the complex weight system. They use glossaries to force people to communicate. And they were really, really new. It was really a clever way to attract more merchants on their roads and also even into their own nomadic camp, which became like trade crossroads, really trade centres. You paint an extraordinary picture of those nomadic camps. The expression might conjure up a certain image to people, but tell us what those nomadic camps were like. Well, it's a very important part of my work. That's why I kept this title, this word of horde, because we have a vision sometimes that is very negative of a horde, like, you know, a crazy bench of people, excited people. In fact, they were extremely organized. A lot of discipline can be seen in these camps. And these camps were not only for armies, they are not military camps. I call them mobile cities. You would find women, children. You would also find administration. You would find craftsmanship. You would find markets as well, and the herds all around. So it's a huge camp. It's more than a camp. It's really a city. And it's something that doesn't exist anymore today. And that I really wanted my readership to get, to imagine, to have the picture of it, because that's really was the core of my work. That's why I kept this word horde. And I really hope that people will understand now that a horde is a fantastic nomadic regime and it's not a negative social construction. It's very interesting. When I was reading your book, I was thinking maybe it's not as different as we think because actually medieval kings in Western Europe were peripatetic. You know, it was um, Henry IV, I think, of France or Henry II of England, I'm not sure. Hey, Henry, I rule with my sword in my hand and my arse in my saddle, right? So moving around your empire of your kingdom, this is not such a foreign concept, is it? Absolutely. So you're right. The nomads' mobility... There are two types of mobility, let's say. One is seasonal. So usually they follow the big river valleys. When it's winter, they go south. When it's summertime, they go north. And then in the midtime, they stop, they organize a camp and they walk. So there's kind of slow movement, seasonal movement. That is kind of predictable too. At the same time, to communicate between all these nomadic camps, between all these hordes, they organize what we call the yam system, a very complex post and supply system that would allow horsemen to cross the whole empire, to jump from a horde to another, to jump from a, you know, a river valley to another and communicate as quickly as possible when there are important information. Or, I mean, not 
very quickly when it's just, you know, need to cross for ambassadors or for foreign travelers who want to cross the empire. They would go their own way, their own tempo. So the nomads were really able to combine all these, these mobilities, in fact, in their empire. And that is very specific to them. And that is very different from what happened in Western Europe at the same time. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the Mongols all coming up. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, I got too excited at the beginning of this interview. We should help our listeners just get some geographical boundaries here. You've got the Yuan dynasty in China, which is descended from the Mongol invaders. What we're talking about is distinct from that. And what stage would the boundary between your horde and Yuan China begin? So it's part of the same empire. We can call it empire, but it's like a big network of Mongol lineage. They are all coming from Genghis Khan, so they have all the same origin. So you have the Yuan rulers in what is China today. You have the Jagatai rulers in Central Asia. In Iran and Azerbaijan, you have the Ilhanid rulers. 
So they are all connected. And in the northwest, you have the Jochid rulers, the rulers who are all coming from the eldest son of Genghis Khan, Jochi. And these were the heads of the horde, so the main characters of my book. And it's important to understand that even if they have their own organization and forms of autonomies locally, they still believe they are part of the same world. They still believe they are part of the what I call the Mongol order, and they have common economic rules, common rules regarding trade, regarding all sorts of exchange. They use the same scripts, same coins. So there's this interesting combination of political, local autonomy, and belief in being part of the same powerful order, the Mongol order. And was there friction? Yeah, there were friction. There were friction, especially in Central Asia. The horde, in fact, was so the descendant of the eldest son of Genghis Khan were seen very early on as the most balanced or the wise ones, let's say. And they were really able to sort of playing like diplomacy, And between the Mongol families, they were leaders also in that sense. So they didn't try to conquer China, for instance. They really respect each other territories. But at the same time, the descendant of the eldest son had a special voice. And the others listened to them, to the Jochids. That's also something I think that was new and what I show in my book. That's, you know, this leadership comes from the West of the Mongol Empire and not from the East, in fact. And while we're talking about the West, the Mongols won some extraordinary victories in what is now Poland. What is the Western frontier or frontier zone of the Horde in the period that you're writing about? Yeah, Poland was outside, but it's on the frontier. Poland and what we call Poland-Lithuania have had a lot of deep relationship with the Mongols. We know they trade together. There were tensions sometimes too. But the frontier really was around what is Bulgaria today. Kiev was inside, but just on the border. So you see, it's really Central Europe would be the frontier zone. But of course, it's not like a frontier like today with nation states. I would say the northwestern frontiers where the step stops, in fact, because for the Mongols, the Mongols, they don't want to sit and try. They still want to live in the steppe area. So beyond the steppe area of the Black Sea, then they would stop and they would not go farther away. They were not interested in conquering Constantinople, for instance. They had, you know, good relationship with the Byzantines. They had trade agreements and they would have been able to, but they didn't care because they prefer to stay in the steppe and then communicate with the outside world through, as I said, trade or, you know, uh, all sorts of cultural exchanges, embassies. You mentioned the postal service earlier. So we've got this imperial, this cultural space stretching from the East Asian coast to modern-day Bulgaria, for example. How long might it take to travel or get a message across that zone? We know that from, if you think about what is, yeah, Bulgaria or Crimea today, up to the um, lower Volga Valley, for instance, it took around a month and a half, perhaps two months. And beyond that, it could be much slower. Or there was a caravanserai route. Actually, it's in Kazakhstan today, so in between the lower Volga and Orgensh, Riva Orgensh, which is in Turkmenistan 
today. This part could take, we think, maybe one month or 15 days. And then to go from this area, so Central Asia, to China through the land route, it could be six months. So we have to understand that, although I say that, but we have no idea about the real direction of the trip for really secret postmen. Secret messengers had their own special roads. They would go their own way. They would change horses a lot. And because it was secret, we have no information and we can imagine that it was even faster. But otherwise, we have to imagine that it's a world with a different tempo. It's a different a way of seeing, traveling and a distance. Yet the Mongols that were among the faster horsemen at that time. Your work is being so highly praised, it's kind of totally reevaluating the way we see these people. Is that because you found new sources? Are you just looking again? Are you just coming with a new eye to existing sources? What's your secret? Well, I think it's a mix of all this. It's not that I have new sources, but the way I put all these sources together, I think is new. I looked into like written text, really produced by the Mongols themselves. So I'm really interested in hearing their voices. I'm also looking at coinages, objects, archaeology. I'm looking at landscape. So I mentioned the river valleys, but honestly, if I had stayed in archives places and not traveled to see all those places, I would not have even guessed that the rivers were so important. When I went there, I went to the Volga Valley, I went to the Lower Ural Valley, I went to Crimea, and I was like, there's water always, everywhere. And this changed my view of this organization and the way they managed to control the landscape by, you know, being so close to their lower river valleys. That's fascinating. That's something I think was new that was not said before. The other thing is also, of course, there are books on the Mongol empires, very good books, but most of the time they focused on the Ilkhanid in the south, so Persia, Azerbaijan, or China. And we don't have so many books, especially in English language, on the horde, on the north. They were seen as, you know, more primitive and there were a lot of also Russian books that were not translated into European language. So I think that's where I probably um, really happy also to share my knowledge of this historiography with wider audience. I show that this part of the Mongol Empire was actually a leading part and that it was obscured because of the historiography, because of political reasons, because of traditional way of writing history. I'm so happy to share this uh, new page of history writing. And I guess in the 19th century in particular, it was just incredibly difficult for Europeans to accept that vast swathes of Europe had for centuries been under the power of Asiatic rulers. Absolutely. And all the more that they were nomads and nomads were like a very negative words, which is so different today. And I think that today we are all ready to accept that nomadic way of life can be a very positive way of life because the relationship with nature is very different. We understand today mobility very much is something that rings a bell for many people. Nomads were seen before as, you know, against civilization, against cities. Well, with Mongols, I could demonstrate that they were also city builders, in fact. They were not against sedentary population. They were different, but they were also able, through their imperial organization, to accommodate sedentary community. So I think it's in that sense, it's a very interesting lesson about how to accommodate different people within one single organization. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.